Hello, welcome to this Hardwick podcast. Um, I'm Daniel Gatti and with me is Priya Gopal. We're both barristers in the property team at Hardwick. Um, the topic for this uh, podcast is freehold and leasehold ownership of airspace and subsoil. And you can find the details for all the, case, all the cases and statutes that uh, we refer to in this podcast on the Hardwick website. Uh, Priya is going to be discussing freehold ownership. I'm going to be talking about leasehold ownership. Uh, we'll both be drawing uh, on material that's covered in the first two chapters of, of my book, which is called A Practical Guide to Rights Over Airspace and Subsoil, uh, which was published by Law Brief Publishing last month. Okay, with that shameless plug out of the way, uh, let's start. Uh, Priya's going to go first. Thank you, Daniel. So with regards to freehold ownership, then, the starting point is a Latin maxim. Uh, my Latin is shocking, so uh, save embarrassment, I'm not going to attempt it. I think Daniel might interject at any point if he wishes to. Um, but the starting point is the owner of the soil is presumed to own everything up to the sky and down to the centre of the earth. So if I can start with looking at the concept of subsoil first and the leading decision, uh, which is Bocardo and Star Energy. And briefly, by way of background, in Bocardo, Star Energy had a petroleum production licence pursuant to the Petroleum Production Act 1934. And their predecessors had bought under Bocardo's land. Uh, they laid pipelines between 800, and 800 feet and 2,800 feet without consent, and Bocardo then claimed damages for trespass. They succeeded in their claim, and in particular in that case, Lord Walker stated as follows. Uh, the owner of the surface is the owner of the strata beneath it, including the minerals that are to be found there, unless there has been an alienation of it by a conveyance at common law or by statute to someone else. He recognised that there, was, there would obviously be some stopping point as one reaches the point at which physical features such as pressure and temperature render the concept so absurd as to not be worth arguing about. But of course, 800 feet, the parts between 800 feet and 2,800 feet did not reach that point and there it was possible to trespass then. A similar sentiment is repeated by Lord Briggs in a more recent decision of London Borough of Southwark and Transport for London and he says as follows, a basic feature of a conveyance or transfer of freehold land by reference to an identified surface area is that unless the context or language of the grant itself requires otherwise it's Effect is to vest in the transferee not only the surface, but the subsoil down, and he says at least in theory, to the centre of the earth and the airspace above. So the point really is that it's as far down as you can have any conceivable practical use. There are, of course, exceptions to the general position. Uh, for instance, and just to name a few, Unworked coal is vested in the Coal Authority under the Coal Industry Act 1994, and title to petroleum is vested in the Crown under the Petroleum Act 1998, and the gold and silver in gold and silver mines vests in the Crown. Turning then next to airspace, if we just remind ourselves then of the maxim of 
the, the owner owning everything up to the sky. Of course, if this was applied literally, it would have absurd consequences. So nobody thinks that every time British Airways flies over your house, they're trespassing. Or if they do, they'd be wrong in law. In Bocardo, Lord Hope made the point that the development of powered flight has made it impossible to apply the maxim literally. So with that in mind, what we can take from the case law as a general principle is that a landowner's use of airspace must be limited to the height which is necessary for the ordinary use and enjoyment of his land. And it was so put by Mr Justice Griffiths in Bernstein of Lee and Skyviews and General, a decision dating back to 1978. So one example of how this has been applied to other cases is the decision of Lekat and Majid, where the defendants installed an extractor fan on their property, which protruded through the side of the wall so that it was partially above the rear yard of the claimant's premises. And the claimant, of course, objected to the extractor fan being above her rear yard, and she commenced proceedings in which she said that the extractor fan trespassed onto the rear yard of her property. She also argued nuisance. The court held that the positioning of the extract fan constituted a trespass by the defendant of the claimant's land, but the issue of relief itself was then remitted to the trial judge. Looking then at how a freeholder may use their land and the restriction on a freehold owner, so they, a freehold owner can carve out their property with, for instance, horizontal divisions and then sell so that one freehold overhangs or projects into another, and this is known as a flying freehold. The others are, for instance, the law of nuisance and the law of negligence, which of course restrict the way that a freehold owner deals with their property, and of course um, a reminder of the rule in Rylands and Fletcher, uh, which has its own special provisions. I believe Daniel's now going to have a look at leasehold ownership. So at bottom, the question whether a lease of land uh, which contains a building includes the airspace above the building or the subsoil beneath it is one of interpretation of the lease. Uh, Broadly speaking, uh, the court takes the same approach to the construction of leases and other conveyances um, as it takes to contracts. It looks for the objective intentions of the parties as to the meaning of the language that's used, Uh, and it asks itself what would a reasonable observer with all the background knowledge uh, available to the parties um, at the time of the of the instrument at the time of the uh, in our case lease uh, what would they have understood uh, the language used to have meant Um, so interpreting uh, the parcels or demise clause of the lease will be key to ascertaining whether it includes airspace or subsoil. Uh, There are, however, four uh, main ways in which uh, the approach taken to leases and other conveyances differs uh, from the approach taken to commercial contracts. First of all, and this is fairly obvious, I suppose, unlike most contracts, uh, there will almost always be a plan to a lease, and the description of the property 
demised will be partly verbal and partly pictorial. The question which of those descriptions is dominant uh, depends on the words used and how the plan is referred to by those words. More often, it, this is a, an issue that arises in, in the context of freehold conveyances and leases, uh, but the difference between a plan said to be for identification only and one said to delineate the parcel of land in question uh, can be important uh, as to the weight uh, to be given to the plan. So that's the first difference. The second one is that the court will uh, readily take into account the physical features of the ground at the date of the conveyance or lease, not something that um, features in your average uh, contractual. Thirdly, uh, the court uh, can take into account the subsequent conduct of the parties to the conveyance or lease, or possibly even successors and title to the original parties. It can only do that if the conduct's probative of the parties' intentions as to the extent of the parcel of land conveyed or leased, but that's a departure from the general rule in contractual uh, construction disputes um, that subsequent conduct is inadmissible on the question of how to construe, how to interpret the contract. And the authority for that is a case called Alley and Lane in the Court of Appeal in 2006. The last distinction I'm going to mention um, derives from the fact that leases, at least if they're for over seven years, and transfers of registered land are public documents which are obtainable from the land registry by prospective purchasers. And because of that, when interpreting them, a little weight is given to the sort of background facts, such as the terms of collateral documents, that wouldn't be apparent from the transfer or lease itself and from an inspection of the physical features of the land. Uh, that was decided in a Court of Appeal case called Cherry Tree Investments and Land Main in 2012, uh, where Lord Justice Lewison gave the leading judgment. So with that general preamble, I'm going to turn to airspace. Um, now, the question whether airspace is included will always turn on the construction of a, a particular lease. But you have, nonetheless, you've got to distinguish, um, or it's, it's helpful to distinguish, between uh, three scenarios. First of all, the lease of a whole building. Secondly, the lease of a vertical division of a building, a house in a terrace or a garage in a single-storey block of garages. Uh, and thirdly, a lease of a horizontal division of a building, by which I mean a flat or or a story in a multi-story building, or one or more stories. So if you look, first of all, at the leases of whole buildings, where that lease includes the roof, it will usually include the airspace above, above the, la above the building and above the land that's demised. Uh, in, as, far, as long ago as 1957, in a case called Kelson against Amer Imperial Tobacco Company of Great Britain and Ireland, Mr Justice McNair commented, uh, and I quote, prima facie, the lease of a single-storey ground-floor premises would include the lease of the airspace above, unquote. And in that case, the lessee of a shop obtained an injunction to prevent a neighbouring property's advertising sign projecting into the airspace above the shop. So unless there's some unusual circumstance, the leasehold um, will carry as much airspace above the building as the freehold does if the lease is of the, the entire building. Is that a presumption? Uh, well, the cases is go in, in slightly different ways. Uh, in 2007, in a case called Ravengate Estates Limited and Horizon Housing Group, which concerned the lease of, a, of the whole of a building apart from the ground and basement floors, Mr Justice Mann referred to a, and again I quote, presumption that a grant normally carries the airspace, unquote. But that was... Uh, strictly speaking, obiter, so it wasn't binding, merely persuasive. And in a subsequent case in the High Court, 
in 2014, case called H. Waits Limited against Hambledon Court Limited, uh, Mr Justice Morgan was not entirely convinced that there was a presumption as such, but he said something that really amounts to a presumption in a case concerning, in that case, airspace above a garage block, which the freeholder wanted to develop by adding flats on top of the garage block. And the judge said, whether one says there's a presumption to be applied, I consider that where one is dealing with the demise of a building, where the wording of the demise is expressed by reference to a vertical division, and there's no wording expressing any horizontal division, it is natural to react to that wording by holding that there's no horizontal cutoff which excludes the airspace above the building or for that matter the subsoil below the building. So notice there that the judge talked about a vertical division, the same approach being taken there to a a detached house for example and a vertically divided building in that case the the block of single-story garages. Either way unless the lease expressly shows a contrary indication the airspace above the building or above the vertical division of the building is likely to be included in the demise. So that is uh, the position in relation to the first two categories of cases that I mentioned earlier. The third category, um, horizontal divisions, uh, there we're talking about flats or leases of single stories or anyhow less, less than the entire building. And the question of ownership of airspace there is, is harder to predict. The first question is always going to be, is the roof included within the demise? If it isn't, although it would be theoretically possible to have a discontinuous demise, a lease of everything up to the roof and airspace above the roof, that's very unlikely. First question is always going to be, is the roof demised uh, with whatever is below the roof? Often uh, the lease won't be explicit about that and so the court would have to draw inferences from other factors such as whether the roof is within the landlord's uh, repairing covenant or the tenant, uh, physical layout of the premises, other factors that are going to vary from lease to lease and from case to case. Uh, And often the answer isn't at all obvious. Uh, In a For example, in a case uh, from 2005 in the Court of Appeal called Delgable Limited uh, versus Perrin Panathan, there was a sublease of the top three floors of a building which was held to include the external walls but not the roof. And uh, Lord Justice Lloyd uh, commented that actually there was very little to go on uh, in trying to decide whether the roof was included. And so either result... Uh, might have been a reasonable one to aim for. Um, Difficult though it may be sometimes, that's the first question. If uh, the question is answered um, affirmatively, i.e. the roof is demised, uh, then it's likely that the airspace above the roof is also going to be within uh, the premises demised to the top floor lessee, at least to a height that would be used for something like a loft extension or or, something of that of that order unless of course the lease provides otherwise as it might do there's a case um, from 1990 by the name of Davis and Yadagar uh, which is often cited um, on this point uh, it concerned a house that was divided into an upper and a lower floor maisonette uh, the lease of the upper floor maisonette expressly included the loft space and the roof But it was argued nonetheless that the lessee of the upper maisonette wasn't entitled to carry out a loft conversion because she didn't own the airspace above the roof. And so uh, her proposed dormer window above the present roof line would be trespassing uh, into uh, the airspace owned by the freehold owner. Uh, Well, the trial judge and the Court of Appeal found for the lessee, and Lord Justice Wolfe, as he was at the time, said, and I quote, 
on a demise of this sort of premises, which includes the roof space and the roof. The demise includes the airspace above the roof, and accordingly there's no trespass involved in carrying out an alteration which alters the profile of the roof so as to protrude further into the airspace above the existing roof. And he went on to acknowledge that it might be different where there's a block of flats with a number of different premises occupied by different tenants and no tenant had the roof in, in the demise. Slightly more recently, in 2011, in a case called Rosebury and Limited against Rockley Limited, uh, Nicholas Strauss QC was sitting as a Deputy High Court judge and he considered whether in the light of Davis and Yadigar there was effectively a presumption that if a lease of part of a building includes the roof, it also includes the airspace above the roof. Um, he considered that but concluded that there wasn't a presumption. It always turns on the interpretation of the individual lease. For example, a court might be less likely to find that a lease of part of the tub top floor carries the airspace than a lease of the whole of the top floor, for reasons which I hope are, are fairly obvious. Um, moving on to subsoil, well, just as with airspace, the question whether subsoil is included in a lease is, is a question of interpretation of, of construction of the lease in question. There are fewer cases about ownership of subsoil than there are about airspace, and that's probably simply, simply a product of the fact that it's harder to, to develop beneath a building than it is to develop above it. I ought to say that what we're not considering here is ownership of minerals. Uh, that raises uh, different considerations. So I'm going to mention two cases to illustrate the court's approach to the question of ownership of subsoil. The first one dates from 2011. It's a case called Le John Vaughan against Cromwell Mansions Management Company Limited. Uh, it was a decision in the High Court of John Jarvis uh, QC, sitting as a deputy. And it concerned a house that had been converted into three flats. Uh, the owners of the ground floor basement and cellar flat wanted to carry out works to extend the flat um, by excavating below ground. So the question whether or not uh, their demise, that their lease granted them the soil below the flat, was, was key. And it was held that it it didn't. Um, the judge considered whether there was a presumption that the bottom floor flat carried with it uh, the subsoil and concluded that that wasn't resolved by any authorities. Uh, and so it turned on the particular lease in question. And he thought, uh, the judge thought, that there was a distinction between subsoil and airspace because, for the practical reason, that the subsoil contains uh, the whole building's foundations and so works by a lessee of part to the subsoil carry a risk to the rest of the building that um, work uh, on top of a roof uh, may not do, unless it's a very heavy structure that's being put on top. And in this case, uh, the terms of the lease expressly placed repairing responsibility for the foundations and the structure of the building on the lessor, and that was a key factor that led him to the conclusion that the subsoil beneath the existing cellar and basement wasn't included in the demise of the ground floor basement and flat. And the second case I'm going to mention, uh, uh, the judge reached the same conclusion. That was a case called Gorston Knight. It's rather more recent, from 2018. Uh, and again, it was a high court case. Uh, his Honour Judge Paul Matthews sitting as a high court judge. And there we, we had a house divided into two maisonettes, and the owner of the downstairs maisonette 
uh, wanted to create a basement room. Uh, the judge, again, uh, treated the issue as substantially a question of construction, and he said that the question was, and I quote, what the construction of the grant, given what was available to be granted and in the context, reveals the intentions of the parties to the lease to have been. Um, and he uh, held that there were important differences between airspace cases, such as Davis and Yadigar, and a subsoil case, for essentially the, the same reasons regarding the, the practical effect of works to subsoil. So it may be difficult to persuade a court uh, that the lessee of a lower part of a building um, has the subsoil within their demise, unless that's made expressly clear in the lease. On the other hand, where you have a, a lease of a house or of a, an entire uh, building or a head lease of an entire block of flats, it's rather more likely to include the subsoil. Um, it's always difficult to draw general propositions out of cases that turn on their own facts and on the terms of, partic uh, the, terms of the lease in question. Uh, but I hope that this uh, little survey of some of the cases provides some useful guidance as to the approach that the court's likely to take. And that um, concludes this Hard Hardwick podcast. We hope you found it interesting and useful you might like to subscribe to our podcast series yes we have a podcast series uh, by way of apple podcast or spotify uh, or whatever other app or medium you use um, and you can find out more information on the hardwick website the web address is www.hardwick.co.uk uh, thanks very much for listening hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specializes in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.